Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On November 29th, former U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger died at the age of 100. With a long career spanning many decades as both a scholar and a statesman, Kissinger leaves behind a controversial legacy. His powerful position during the height of the Cold War allowed him to exert tremendous influence on U.S. foreign policy, shaping major events such as the opening to China and the exit of the United States from Vietnam. While many have celebrated his success in resolutely pursuing U.S. global interests, others have denounced his apparent disregard for values, especially human rights. To unpack Kissinger's immense and complicated impact on both the United States and the world, we're very pleased to have David Stanger and Steven Sistanovich with us today on the podcast. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Um, I should note both of our guests, who I will introduce more properly in a second, have written really tremendous pieces on Kissinger and his legacy. So if you haven't seen David's piece in the New York Times and Steve's piece in the Atlantic, um, everyone should check them out. Um, But for those uh, who want a little more on both our guests, David is the White House and National Security Correspondent for the New York Times, reporting on President Biden and his administration with a particular focus on foreign policy and its intersection with technology, politics, and great power conflict. And Steve Sistanovich is the George F. Kennan Senior Fellow for Russian and Eurasian Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Catherine and Shelby Collum Davis Professor of International Diplomacy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. He's the author of Maximalist, America in the World from Truman to Obama, uh, published in February 2014. All right, David, I'm going to start with you um, on a very kind of personal human level. You had uh, the great opportunity to interview, uh, engage, and interact with Kissinger over the span of many years. And so I have been so curious to ask you kind of what stood out to you the most in your personal interactions with him. I guess the main thing that stood out, Andrea, was that... um, Over the 50 years, just about since he left office, he was um, left uh, Secretary of State at the end of uh, 1976, he has constantly been nurturing, shaping, rewriting his own legacy, right? Nobody tended to the image of Henry Kissinger more carefully than Henry Kissinger. And he was highly aware that there were two caricatures of who Henry Kissinger was. One was the brilliant tactician who separated China from Russia by moving to the U.S. toward the U.S. recognition of China, certainly the opening of China, that uh, was largely the work of President Nixon, but which Kissinger ended up becoming um, skeptically at first and then with some enthusiasm the great architect, detente with Russia, obviously, the negotiations that ended the Vietnam War, although his critics will point out that the deal he ended up with, he could have gotten pretty much most of uh, at the beginning of those negotiations. And so many American and Vietnamese lives were lost in the interim. The other caricature was the Henry Kissinger, who paid no attention or could care less about what happened to people caught up in non-great power competition, whether it was the people of Bangladesh, then East Pakistan during the battles there, or of um, East Timor when Indonesia went in and and killed 200,000 residents, or uh, the coup in Chile, you name it, there are many incidents where the charge is that Kissinger at a minimum turned his back and let dictators do what they want to do, and at a maximum maybe maybe even encouraged it in order to bring along uh, allies who uh, the Americans felt they needed for bigger projects. And my task was to go about writing one of those incredibly long, detailed, hopefully balanced New York Times obituaries. This was one of the longest in our history. It was 10,000 words long. Um, 
your uh, listeners don't have to read every word, but I hope they do. Uh, and to do that, I did everything from travel the world and talk to people who dealt with Kissinger to go back to his birthplace in Firth in, in Germany. Uh, the apartment building is still standing, as is the um, park where he played soccer obsessively as a, as a kid. It's hard to imagine Henry Kissinger as a as a kid kicking a soccer ball around, but the park is still there. It was full of Syrian refugees on the morning that I, I went to it. Um, and to go interview him. And at one point in the course of that, um, he looked at me. I had been warned this was coming and said, um, David, is, is this one of those stories for which uh, I won't be able to uh, call and argue with the premise? Because I had said I was working on his life. You don't really tell people, hi, I'm, I'm here to interview you for your obituary. Um, and, uh, and since I knew this was coming, I was sort of ready with an answer, which was, uh, well, if anybody could figure out how to do that, Mr. Secretary, I'm sure you will. Uh, I've been waiting for the cell phone to ring in the in the week since it ran. I love that. I love that. Um, Steve, anything that you would add uh, on that kind of personal human level? <laughs> I, I think the first thing I have to say on a personal human level is that uh, the obit that David wrote uh, for The Times is completely fantastic and everybody should read it. Uh, it'll be shorter than the two volumes of Neil Ferguson's uh, biography and will contain just as much uh, uh, of interest. Um, you know, I first encountered Kissinger in a sustained way when I left the National Security Council in 1987, and I went to a Washington think tank called CSIS where Kissinger was one of the presiding deities. And his one of his big jobs there, uh, as David suggested, was sort of tending to his own uh, kind of magisterial place in, uh, in Washington discussion. Uh, you know, there couldn't really be a foreign policy issue that uh, was worthy of discussion without some reference to how Henry had handled it uh, in the Nixon and Ford administrations. And, um, and most of the big issues should probably be handled in the same way was, was his message. And so, you know, we, we found ourselves uh, in, in disagreements. I mean, he would, because he tended to have the lectern at trustee dinners you know, would mock people who thought that uh, there was something different about Soviet-American relations in the 80s from the 70s and, you know, treated people who thought Gorbachev was something different as naive and silly. And, um, you know, that had its entertainment value. Uh, and it certainly uh, was part of some a project that he was, you know, still... Uh, kind of at, at work on and finishing that is his uh, his memoirs. I think the third volume had was only just coming out then. Um, but you know, it showed you a a side of Kissinger that was sometimes less attractive, shall we say, to uh, other people. Um, you know, kind of beating up on junior foreign policy types uh, didn't seem to me the most dignified way for a former secretary of state to act. But but that was Henry Kissinger. It, you know, he he was really interested above all in in his role and making sure that everybody understood how uh, important uh, it was. And there was no doubt, you know, Kissinger was br brilliant and funny and relentless. And, uh, you know, so he he was better uh, entertainment value at trustee dinners than I was, I promise you. Well, you, you said something about, you know, like the changing of opinion. I mean, maybe sometimes reluctant, slow to do it sometimes, but in other cases, he really had some major about faces on some of his big ideas. 
And again, I think we're going kind of in reverse chronological order and we'll dig down into some of the history. But one of the things I've been so um, surprised by, and maybe you guys will correct me that it's not a surprise, but is his views on NATO membership for Ukraine. And before we were recording this podcast, I was kind of poking around and trying to do a little bit of reading. And I came across an economist interview with him um, back in, I believe it was April of this year. And he, I'm going to just really read a very quick quote. He says in this interview with The Economist, we have now armed Ukraine to a point where it will be the best armed country and with the least strategically experienced leadership in Europe. If the war ends like it probably will with Russia losing many of its gains, so that's maybe a little bit off now or dated, but he says, we may have a dissatisfied Russia, but also a dissatisfied Ukraine. In other words, a balance of dissatisfaction. So for the safety of Europe, it is better to have Ukraine in NATO where it cannot make national decisions on territorial claims. I wonder how you both understand his evolving views on Ukraine and its potential future as a NATO member. Well, if you want me to start Deb, uh, in there, first of all, while Kissinger would argue on things that he felt strongly on, we saw him change positions on a number of big things, right? I mean, he he came to the fore in 1957 with a book called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy that basically made the argument you could conduct limited nuclear war. And he ended up at the end of his life calling for the uh, abolition of nuclear weapons, though he did it with less enthusiasm than some of his co-signers on on, on that. Um, we saw him take a harder and harder line on how you would go deal with Russia as Russia became um, uh, more difficult to deal with. And so it doesn't surprise me that over time he came to view the right solution for Ukraine to put it in NATO, not just to defend against Russian invasion, but to constrain Ukraine's leaders. And it was very Kissingerian because he was very much of a view that that's how you make diplomacy work, right? That you you wrap uh, a country that has a problematic history in all kinds of different constraints. And sometimes you end up doing that with your allies or friends as much as you do with your adversaries. Yeah, Andrea, if I could just add to that, you know, uh, <laughs> the typical Kissingerian formula there was cannot make national decisions. I mean, Kissinger liked the idea that, um, you know, part of uh, being exercising this leadership role for the United States was uh, keeping allies from feeling too autonomous. Uh, it got him into a lot of trouble with allies. Uh, you know, as Secretary of State, he found himself constantly. Uh, bumping up against German and European, I mean, French preferences. Uh, he, uh, his idea was allies shouldn't be able to have their own diplomacy with the Soviet Union. It, it should be ours in, entirely. And so he found himself conducting many feuds with the uh, German chancellor, the French president, the foreign ministry, ministers of, uh, of both countries. And his, um, you know, while his views were capable of change, he could also be extremely rigid and uh, uh, unwilling to change. For example, in the 1980s, I mentioned his view of uh, Soviet-American relations under, um, under Reagan. He was fiercely critical of the INF Treaty, uh, said it was one of the worst things that had happened since World War II, even though it was this huge reduction of Soviet and American missile forces in Europe. Uh, he thought it was going to be terrible for the Allies. They would hate it. And of course, there was some anxiety among certain Allies about the way in which it would uh, 
possibly weaken the American security guarantee. But all in all, it created a, uh, a more stable and secure and less con conflict-driven Europe. Um, Kissinger's view of, just to go back to your question about Ukraine and Russia, was uh, you had to find a way to keep that um, that struggle from exploding. Uh, and that was certainly a, 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 you know, a proper insight. Um, he approached it in a way, always trying to figure out where the center of gravity in Washington opinion was. So that when Washington opinion was against membership for Ukraine, he was against it. And then when it turned in favor, he tended to turn uh, in favor. But I think his analysis, and he was above all, a, you know, an incredibly incisive analyst, was you might end up with a war at the end of this war with dissatisfied Russia and dissatisfied Ukraine. And that would be a challenge for American diplomacy, a very good description of the problem. Well, thank you both for uh, for coming. I I, uh, I I just I found the writing uh, that has exploded out of the his passing has been excellent, uh, and both of you all have contributed so well. And David, yours was the first that I read, and it really set the pace. And I just appreciate thank all you. you all put into this. You know, one thing that Gaza kind of kind of um, uh, had us all by surprise was the generational. Uh, split between my kids uh, in college or right out of college and their view about U.S. support to Israel and this type of thing versus our generation, you know, who grew up uh, during the Kissinger shuttle diplomacy and the Camp David Accords and became very used to um, what the U.S. policy was towards Israel. And then Gaza kind of exposed that there's a generational split, really, between the generation just coming along now and how they view the world and how they view U.S. policies that we've taken for granted for many years that were formulated back in the Cold War, many of them, uh, and uh, and their parents. And I think it's been fascinating to see the split. But you also see it with Kissinger in trying to explain his legacy to them. Uh, and I have struggled with this with my kids, and I teach as well. And uh, and I have a view of Kissinger based on coming out of the Cold War and, and seeing Kissinger uh, do his thing uh, during those uh, so many years, watching him do what he did. Um, I have a I have a very practical uh, view of his diplomacy, and my kids think I'm just a murderer. You know, they just can't believe it, uh, and they believe very much that um, some of those headlines uh, that that were coming out about uh, Kissinger being a war criminal and this type of thing. That's kind of where they were. So I want to ask you two, how do you explain this to your kids? <laughs> how do you explain Kissinger in a way uh, that gives them an understanding of that he was a creature of his time in a lot of ways and also a very peculiar or particular view of, of diplomacy and the role of the United States? Uh, and, that, um, and that it's not what this current generation thinks it is, war criminal and murderer and how have you explained this, this, uh, this challenge to your kids of defining Henry Kissinger in a way that doesn't get you thrown out of the house in the evening? David. I'm not sure. I've, I yeah, I'm not sure I've succeeded at that. But um, I would say this: first of all, as you suggest, you have to explain him in the context of his times, right? And you know the the mid-east crisis that he went into which was basically the shuttle diplomacy around the Yom Kippur war was a very different dynamic than what we have just seen happening in Gaza because it didn't have quite the overlay of this counterattack on a captive population in an effort to go wipe out Hamas but killing huge numbers of civilians along the way because the terrorists were hiding among them. So the dynamic was different. The political era was different. The um, 
divisions in the country over the Vietnam War were radically different. And that was the first thing, but hardly the last, that led to that characterization uh, of Kissinger. Um, I actually found it less difficult to explain that to kids than I did to colleagues of mine who grew up in that era when Kissinger was considered a war criminal and were asking the question, even within the newsroom of the New York Times, how much do we want to write about? How much do we want to explore somebody who they regarded, some of them, as a war criminal? And the answer is he was a world historical figure who had probably more impact on the world as we know it now than many presidents we've had in the past for good and for bad. Um, For one of my kids, my youngest, he happened to be with me at a conference in Kent, Connecticut, when I did one of my last interviews for the obituary with Kissinger. And uh, he was um, going into his junior year at Harvard at the time. And um, he came along uh, with me and I introduced him to Kissinger and Kissinger immediately invited him to join the interview. And this was going to be our discussion of Vietnam and what their assumptions were going in and what lessons they learned. And Kissinger sort of turned away from me and toward my son, Ned, and began talking to him about Vietnam as if he was conducting a junior seminar again in his professorial role about what the origins of the war were and what the key decision points were. And um, it was fascinating both to watch him in professor mode and to watch him in professor mode about something where he had a deep self-interest in what facts he presented and how he cast himself. And basically made the admission during the course of this, which I'd be interested in Steve's view of, that the um, U.S. went into this thinking it was an extension of the Cold War uh, in Europe and came out of it concluding, no, it was actually something quite different. Um, And I just sort of shut up and took notes. But I realized that Kissinger never stopped his kind of role as uh, one who he thought needed to shape younger minds about foreign policy. And he had a point where all the minds around him were probably younger. And that extended to his remarkable move from age 95 on to writing about artificial intelligence and its potential role in national security. Let me pick up the question of how uh, how to explain <laughs> and talk about Henry Kissinger to uh, to the younger generation. Uh, I haven't gotten any feedback on my <laughs> my piece uh, yet from my kids, but I'll pass it along when I do. Um, I think there are many ways to uh, talk about Kissinger, not just as um, someone of his time, but someone. Um, you know, who face problems that are rather like our time. You know, in the Atlantic piece, I describe the uh, extraordinary congressional pushback against Kissinger's policies that he encountered as Secretary of State. There was much less of it in the first term of the um, of the uh, of Nixon administration than in the second and then in under Ford. Um, you know, Kissinger found himself blocked from uh, reaching an arms control treaty with the Soviet Union by Congress. He found himself blocked from extending normal trade relations with um, the Soviets by a congressional initiative to tie it to human rights and emigration. He found himself blocked from offering weapons to uh, guerrilla anti-communist guerrilla group in Africa because the Congress vetoed it and not just his not just Democrats who were his opponents but Republicans as well. So in a week when we find the Congress at war with the president over uh, you know aid to Ukraine, 
uh, border security, uh, aid to Israel and Taiwan, you know, these are uh, struggles that are very familiar from Kissinger's time. Uh, Kissinger experienced a kind of pushback against his policies that outraged him because he thought, you know, diplomacy should not be run by members of Congress. Uh, it should be run by us high concept geniuses uh, who know how to uh, maneuver other leaders and, uh, and advance the interests of our country as we understand them. But you know, that isn't the way foreign policy works in, uh, in a democracy. And Kissinger, I think, never really adjusted to that, certainly not as Secretary of State. Uh, it's why his, his term as Secretary of State was much rockier than people anticipated when they thought, oh my God, Nixon has uh, picked this global celebrity <laughs> who's, you know, mastered every issue put before him in the uh, in the first Nixon term. Uh, but instead, it turned out to be a much more familiar American political story. Um, one other way, since David mentioned the uh, war in the Middle East now and the war in the Middle East then, to uh, you know, to connect it is to say Kissinger's extraordinary achievement in the, and I think it's his, you know, most significant achievement as Secretary of State uh, was to take this conflict in the Middle East and um, not only stabilize the situation but greatly enhance the American role in the region. I mean, by the two years after uh, after the war broke out, uh, the American position in the Middle East was and remained for decades far stronger than it had been just before the war. It's an interesting test for uh, American policymakers today whether they're going to be able to find a way to strengthen the American role as this war unfolds. So far, I'd say the indications are not that. Uh, the war is having an effect uh, uh, that's sort of the opposite. It's, to, it's demonstrating to major governments in the region uh, that the United States doesn't actually have all that much influence over events. Henry Kissinger actually demonstrated something rather different. And so in that respect, he offers an interesting model for students, you know, who are interested in thinking about what the role of the United States should be in the world. That's very insightful. Thank you. And thank you both. I will try those approaches with my kids. <laughs> Let you know if I'm if still <laughs> or living under a bridge somewhere. Um, let me, David, you mentioned your, right, your writing about Kissinger in the New York Times, uh, uh, you know, in the context of the New York Times and the newsroom there. When you were writing the, your appreciation and the obituary uh, just uh, last week, did you have colleagues looking over your shoulder who might have had a different view than you just to make sure that, um, you know, some of this idea of, uh, of Kissinger as the, I don't want to call him a war criminal, but this Kissinger as the hard-assed uh, diplomat made it into that appreciation? Were there, were, did there, were there those very interested to see how balanced this was going to be? Or did, did they uh, leave you alone to, to, to balance it as you wanted to? So, first of all, it was an obituary, not an appreciation. Right. And those are two very different things. That's true. Okay. okay. An obituary is uh, an assessment of somebody's life and tells the biography, speaks out their voice, and so forth. Um, this was an advanced obituary, of which we have hundreds. Uh, which means, you know, nobody generates a 10,000 word account of Henry Kissinger's life or any other major figure's life um, starting the day they die or when you hear that they're sick. Um, this was a three year long project on and off while I was doing my other tasks. It started in about 2015 when we took an old obituary that had been written by a, a very talented 
a colleague of mine who had passed away in, in 2010, uh, but that had been written, you know, largely from news stories, biographies, and so forth. And I was asked to go out and basically report out. And the key question here being report, not research. That's the verb, you know, the this obituary in true New York Times style, go out and interview the people this person dealt with, go out and interview the subject himself, go to the places that they were or that were critical to their time. Uh, it's a big, long expenditure of, of time and effort. It was then edited for exactly the question that you asked. And then about four or five months ago, we brought in an extremely experienced uh, editor, Herbert Buxbaum, been on the foreign desk of the Times for many years, um, and had him take a fresh look at it. And he came back and said, I thought you did the balance pretty well, but I think we need a little more of Kissinger and human rights. And we we re-looked at each of those major incidents that we um, had discussed and looked at it in the context of the total balance of this 10,000 word piece. And we got it to about where we wanted it at the end of the spring or early summer. Uh, I went at that time, oh, including to CSIS, to uh, one of Kissinger's 100th birthday parties. There were many, one in Washington, one in New York at the New York Public Library that Secretary of State Blinken and uh, the CIA director, Bill Burns, were at. Burns spoke at the one I was at in D.C. Uh, Kissinger went to, back to Firth. He even took a private plane and went at the invitation of Xi Jinping back to China and was sort of celebrated there because the Chinese see him as a sign of a, a brighter era. Um, so, uh, we put a lot of time into this and we certainly got outside editorial views so that I was not the only one sort of trying to strike that right tone. And I think that improved it. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear the backstory of these things in the years, but Steve, on that, some of, some of the substance, you know, I think we're because we're talking to a transatlantic audience, not as focused on the China piece, although I do want to come back to Kissinger's views on the Russia-China relationship. But one thing that I um, have also kind of focused in on is, you know, Kissinger's role in detente and certainly constructing the arms control framework that had persisted for so long. And there's, you know, no right answer to this question, but when he looks at this current era and basically the unraveling of the arms control regime that he put in place, what do you think his reaction would be? So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about first his role during the Cold War in constructing those agreements, and then maybe his what you would surmise his views would be about the unraveling of that framework. Yeah, not an easy question. Um, he took uh, efforts that had been made starting in the late 60s under Johnson to try to find a formula for agreement between the U.S. and Soviet Union in limiting, stabilizing, equalizing strategic nuclear forces. Um, and he had an initial success at it, uh, a, a, a kind of commitment on both sides to work out some rough equivalents. Uh, but the details kept getting in his way uh, because you had a kind of dynamism uh, in the uh, in the building programs, nuclear building programs of both sides that kept making it hard to find uh, precise definitions that would limit each side's uh, forces. And, you know, that the difficulty of controlling an arms race is part of what led, David referred to this earlier, some of um, other senior policymakers out of office to say, we really just need to get rid of nuclear weapons uh, altogether. This thought had driven Kissinger totally nuts in the past, but he came around to it. Uh, 
as David said, with a little less enthusiasm than some of the other some of the other advocates. If I could pick up on one thing that uh, that David mentioned, which is uh, the human rights theme in uh, in Kissinger's career and the the you know the decision by the Times to bolster the treatment of that in the in the obituary, uh, I think this was an almost uh, entirely unnecessary bit of damage to Kissinger's um, effectiveness and reputation as Secretary of State. Um, he, I can tell a little story here. Uh, when I was an intern at the State Department in 1976, uh, we met with um, uh, Kissinger and some of his senior advisors in separate meetings. And one of them, one of his top advisors referred to Alexander Solzhenitsyn as a fascist. And we were utterly stunned. I mean, what was the reason for this? But there was a kind of animus toward, um, you know, the Soviet dissident movement, human rights advocates, that was just, that made no sense. Uh, it was something uh, really that I, I found hard to explain, particularly for some somebody whose biography included a, you know, a lucky escape as a boy from totalitarianism. Um, and, and Kissinger, uh, you know, he, he found himself, uh, although he changed his mind on, on mind on nuclear weapons, he didn't change his mind so much on human rights. He, he, he thought of it as, something that you had to acknowledge in American foreign policy, that there was, you know, there was a domestic support for it that meant you couldn't ignore it in the way that he had. I think he understood that he'd not handled that well, but he never saw it as an important part of American power. He never saw the, the, the way in which uh, ideology could bind the United States to other countries. Uh, he saw it entirely as something that you had to work around. Uh, yeah, if you were a policymaker, you had to, in your kind of sniveling, hypocritical way, pretend to be interested in. Um, and and in that respect, I think it was a you know a longstanding blind spot because, to my mind, uh, you know, democratic ideology actually has been a source of strength uh, for American foreign policy, and that didn't come through. Uh, for him, I would say, ever. <laughs> um, David, you mentioned before that, um, or at least it's in your your obituary of Kissinger, that um, Kissinger was warning about the dangers of underestimating Putin. And in that, you know, I think that I don't remember exactly when he kind of issued some of those warnings, but what is it that you think he understood about Putin that maybe others at the time didn't similarly see? Um, you know, it's interesting. He said, if you want to understand Putin, um, don't read about the Soviets, read Dostoevsky. And, um, you know, he saw him in the run of, Russian nationalist characters, and I think understood more clearly than we did, certainly than I did earlier than the rest of us did, that um, he was uh, playing out uh, his fantasies of restoring, Putin was playing out his fantasies of restoring the empire of Peter the Great. And that this was not as many said, you know, an effort to go back and rebuild the Soviet Union. In fact, Putin was deeply critical of the Soviet leaders for giving away or or uh, giving too much power to the Soviet republics. Um, and uh, that was, you know, pretty instructive. Um, I do think that he was slow on the rise of a Chinese threat. You know, he said at one point when they, when he worked with Nixon on the opening to China, there was no discussion of potential Chinese military power because that seemed ridiculous in the early 1970s. Um, 
And yet he was so invested in the nature of the relationship he built that I think the idea of pivoting to more of a containment policy, which is basically what Donald Trump did and what Joe Biden have done in different ways, um, rubbed him the wrong way. I think the other thing he was potentially so, and then Steve, you can add on that, is the deepening of the relationship between Russia and China. I mean, I mean, right, that's for people who study that relationship in particular, there's constant references to the reverse Kissinger and, you know, how can we drive a wedge? And, um, you know, that in this day and age and given the geopolitics of it is just not possible. But my sense is, and I think I had read this somewhere, that was that he was still skeptical of the deepening relationship between Russia and China, in large part given historic mistrust between the two sides. But is this another instance where, again, kind of because it was a legacy of, you know, one of his major accomplishments to pull the Chinese away, that he was perhaps a little bit reluctant or resistant to to accepting that those two uh, have this rapprochement and these this deepening relationship? You know, that's just too hard a question for me to answer. So I'm going to instead tell you another little story. And I Kiss- love the stories, too. And so that, about yeah, Kissinger and Putin. Putin loves to tell the story of his first meeting with Kissinger. And he always said, repeats that uh, he and Kissinger discussed their shared background in intelligence, because Kissinger, of course, had been in military intelligence in World War II, and um, Putin had been in the KGB. And Kissinger said in response to this, well, the best people always come from intelligence. And Putin, of course, loved to tell this story because it was a way of, uh, you know, prettifying his own KGB background. I'm liking Uh, that story, too, Steve. It it shared the it, it it echoed the KGB's view of itself, of course, that they were the best people. Uh, in this in the Soviet system, uh, the real meritocrats. But I I you know encountered Kissinger once at, at a cocktail party, and I said to him, you know, Putin is quoting you all the time. You know that comment about the best people come from intelligence, and I said you were really just joking, weren't you? And he said, oh, of course, of course, you know, just small talk. And I said can I tell my Russian friends that you were just joking? And he said, oh my God, no, <laughs> because he didn't want to ruin a good relationship with a uh, an important person whose contact with him symbolized Kissinger's continuing international relevance. Good for the consulting business too, I might add. Yeah, were you going to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say that I saw your head getting bigger and bigger. As- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Dine out on that comment for weeks to come. But <laughs> let me let me ask you both, and David, particularly you, having written the the obituary, uh, which we all appreciated. Um, but uh, the um, w- did Kissinger ever say, or what do you think he wanted uh, to be remembered for? You know, he's got a huge legacy, and I'm sure there were some some things that he really took greater pride in than others. But what do you think he wanted to have as his epitaph? What would he what did he want to be seen as as a as a as a person? Uh, You know, what would what would he want on his tombstone? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but I think he wanted to be known as the great power strategist who saved the war from nucle- the world from nuclear annihilation you know by bringing china in and per- particularly by detente with uh with russia at the worst moments of the cold war um you know he wrote his senior thesis and thus his first book about metternich right and and if you read his description of him you see as i wrote in the obit some sentences that you probably think he he would like to say about himself uh a diplomat who operated 
with um, both cunning and subtlety, uh, who, you know, through his secretiveness and through his manipulations, managed to bring about significant outcomes for um, the the national interests that he was pursuing. Um, so I think for him, it was all in Kissinger, the diplomat, but he realized that he had to overcome the Kissinger, the human rights violator, uh, Kissinger, the one who ignored the suffering of masses uh, image. And, you know, he made a mistake along the way here, which is that he outlived the declassification of many of his own cables and memos. And so as he got to spin a story about his life and what he did, we all got to check it versus the docu- the original documents signed and written at the time. And I, I guess there's a lesson in that, which is, um, you know, don't live longer than that declassification date. Know when the party's over. Yeah. Jim, can I answer the question in a slightly different way? Um, that is, what would what does Kissinger most not want to be remembered uh, for? Um, and I, uh, I think it's uh, to to be kind of blended in to the continuous story over many decades of American foreign policy, and to look actually kind of average. Um, I think if you, and I've, I've done this comparison in an article I published in The Atlantic several years ago, comparing uh, the record of presidents and secretaries of state at the end of sort of stalemated, unsuccessful wars. So Eisenhower, Nixon, Kissinger, Obama. And in fact, the record looks rather similar. Um, it's it, there's you know there's no doubt Obama might challenge this that Kissinger had the highest IQ of anybody uh, who was handling policies of this sort, but the pattern of policy making is rather similar. You know you got stronger centralization, Eisenhower, Obama. Uh, you've got uh, outreach to adversaries. You've got an attempt to come up with new initiatives that show you're actually stabilizing the role of the United States, arms control, and so forth. You have um, difficulties in the second term that you didn't have in the first term. All of these presidents had less successful second terms than they did first terms because the truth is people the american people generally support getting out of these wars they're not so happy with what follows because there's the adjustment to a new reality in which the united states doesn't always have as good answers uh, and as much unity and support and so i, I think if you the story that one can see looking at american policy over many decades actually makes Nixon and Kissinger look less weird, less, uh, you know, like sort of heroes from 19th century diplomacy and more like, you know, people managing the problems of the Cold War in the way that their predecessors and their successors did. And uh, with many unusual qualities, and Kissinger is really like nobody else, um, but, uh, you know, as I like to say, you know, diplomacy is not an IQ test. Um, diplomacy actually tends to have a lot of continuities in it that are related to the power and the purposes of the country that you're managing. And so for Kissinger, I mean, I think it's possible that a century from now, we won't think of Nixon and Kissinger as anything really fantastic, but as examples of American policymakers who were handling some of the same problems that others did in not very different ways. And Henry Kissinger will hate that. 
Normal and ordinary is what he really didn't want to be because he wasn't normal and ordinary. He wasn't a, a, a one-of-a-kind person. It's just that you can be a one-of-a-kind person as Secretary of State, and the, and the results can still be very familiar. Well, I think that was a perfect, very Jim-esque question to end on. And I think we're at time, but wow, this was, I mean, I think we really covered the ups, the downs, the complicated, the nuance. I think, I mean, in many ways, this podcast is a is a solid reflection of the man's life. And Jim, you want to say something? Well, I, we didn't talk about Jill St. John and that whole side. <laughs> we'll say that for another podcast, but but frankly, you know, that's a part of his personality, too. And uh, uh, that's just to me. Uh, I, I've never understood that. But but we're going to close on. Jim, I, I think, I you know, just to, to add in the short part, he, he, he was, of you know, his famous line was power is the greatest aphrodisiac. Right. And uh, the joke about about him as he squired uh uh, actresses and so forth around and was seen in restaurants with them and all that was um, that um, Henry flouts his private life to hide what he's doing at the office. <laughs> I, you know, no, you know, can I may add one other thing here? And I'm sorry to keep prolonging this. Kissinger is just too much fun to talk about. I think one of the things that people underestimate in uh, in talking about Kissinger's effectiveness as a diplomat is personal charm. Uh, yeah. He was an extremely skillful manipulator of people just in personal terms of making them feel that he thought they were great, that they were, you know, he's a global celebrity, but they're just as great. This definitely was true of, uh, of Sadat, of Brezhnev. Harder to, for me to say about the, uh, about the Chinese leaders. Diplomacy is in part about personal charm and insinuation. Uh, and he was in that respect, a master. Yeah, absolutely. It must've been a very powerful aphrodisiac to get the kind of reactions that he did. It must've been really high octane. <laughs> Well, this was so much fun. I learned a lot and I'm so glad that we got both of you to do this. Um, I think you've just shed a, uh, an incredible amount of insight and I've loved the kind of personal human insights into Kissinger. So this was really wonderful. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.